Welcome to the podcast. We do recover with Jared Miller, your host. And I'm Dr. Terry Sellers, your co-host. This is a podcast about recovery from addiction. We want to talk about what successful recovery can look like. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. Ladies, lads, listeners from everywhere, welcome to episode 108. Today we have a special guest coming all the way from Reno, Nevada. Scott Henderson is joining us. Scott, everything going through on your end? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. Welcome to the podcast, buddy. How are you doing today? Thank you. I'm doing really well today. Thank you. Good, good. Well, it's uh, episode 108 is brought to us by Rise Up Supplements. Rise Up Supplements is a nootropic line aimed at optimizing brain function and supporting mental health. We have two blends. There's Mindful Mood, which is going to decrease anxiety and going to enhance mood. And then there's Mind Shift, which is going to increase focus and optimize brain function. If you're unfamiliar with nootropics, Google it, check it out. These are supplements that are going to affect the mind. So for a little episode or a little podcast special, we're doing a promo. It's podcast 20. It saves you 20% off your entire purchase at checkout. Check it out, everybody. If you support the podcast through supporting our sponsors, you make it possible for us to bring these messages of hope uh, out out to the masses. So we really appreciate our sponsorships. Please go sponsor our sponsors. Go to riseupsups.com. That's R-I-S-E-U-P-S-U-P-S.com. Podcast 20 saves you 20%. All right, Scott, here we go. You ready? So we usually started, we usually start off with like some positive psychology. We call it new and goods. What's new and good in your world? Well, my wife and I have currently, um, started the guardianship process to basically um, have guardianship over our granddaughter. So um, that's beautiful, man. That is new and good. Yeah. She just turned two years old on December 27th and we were just pleased as punch to be able to have her. And my wife actually looked at me today and said, who would have thought Scott that out of all of the relatives, you would be considered the stable one. <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> yes, and we're going to get to that story. That sounds like there's a whole lot to that, buddy. I'm excited to get to it. Let's check yeah. in with Sean. Sean Denman, I need you to start off by just taking a deep breath, man. You're going 90 miles an hour. Well, you're you're like podcast seven today for me. Yeah, yeah, I get it. And so I had to cut the other person off to have you come in, and then they're coming back for more after we're done here. Wow! Yeah, and then I had like a big phone call and blah blah. You know, it's a it's a day. It's a yeah, man. It's but like, this is how I make things happen. Did you see the new box outside? Yeah, you thrive off this stuff. Yeah, I gotta you ho- know what to do if you didn't see, have twenty. I, I'm gonna move the camera. I got I want to. I want to show everybody this. Let's see. Hold on a second. Which one is it? The wide camera? Yeah. Here we go. You can't see. Gonna blind you. Yeah, that's that's a totally horrible picture. What you see there is a my new sound booth. It's a four by four by seven, complete isolation, quiet <clears throat> sound booth for voiceover recording and stuff. For like people that want to do books yeah, or things yeah, like that. Yeah, that's so rad. Le- less broadcast, more more book and dry audio stuff. So if people want to come do that, come see me. We'll we'll talk. I know I've said this on previous podcasts, but one thing that I really admire about you, Mister Denovan, is you're always looking to improve. You're always looking to change things up. You're, I mean, you're like the optimizing guy. It's if all I that mind just, shift that you're taking. If isn't I could it? just do that with my body at the gym, that'd be great. <laughs> but I could do it with everything else in my life. <laughs> oh, very nice, very nice. All right, let's get rocking and rolling. So, Scott, something tells me that you're a person in long-term recovery. Is that true? Um. September last year, I celebrated eight years clean and sober. Eight years in so, recovery. Eight years in yes, recovery. Sir. Fantastic. Well, guess what, Scott? You're on the right podcast then, buddy, because this is a pod, a podcast about recovery from addiction. So let's start. Where does that start for you? Like, you know, everybody's journeys are a little bit different. Uh, if Dr. Sellers was on a little passive aggressive jab, Dr. Sellers, he'd ask you about your childhood and want to know what you got when you were four years old for Christmas and stuff. What I want to know is... What was going on before? What happened? How are things now, right? So so go ahead. Where does that start for you? Where does the substance abuse come in your life? 
Well, it started at a young age. You know, I was a military brat, uh, father army. And, you know, it was, I had a great life growing up. And I remember being really young and my dad would always say, Scotty, go get me a beer out of the fridge. And I'd go run and I'd grab a beer and I'd pop the top and <laughs> sip the foam off of it and hand it to him, you know? At what age is this? At what age are you sipping foam, Scott? Four, five. Wow. Somewhere in that area, you know? And I mean, that was, and everybody thought it was the cutest thing ever, right? Because this was the 70s, you know, <laughs> early 70s, and nobody cared, you know? As, I mean, they were still smoking on airplanes and everything else, you know? It was, it was a normal thing. And then <clears throat> 1976, I believe my dad said, I, he asked me during the Super Bowl to go get him a beer. So I went over there and I grabbed two and I threw him one and cracked one and sat there next to him on the couch and proceeded to drink my beer. And he was like, okay. Wow. And what and age are you in, in this year? Six. Six years old. Wow. Yeah. So you started pretty young, Scott. Uh, yeah, well, you know. That well, I mean, from what I've also heard is that they would put um, booze in my bottle when I was colic. Oh, okay. As an infant, you know, two years old or whatever, and and everything. I guess flying when I I was colic on the airplane, and I my little sister was born in Germany, and I at two years old took or a little over a year took a flight to Germany with my mom, and was colic at this whole time mm. on the plane. So, what I heard there was you know little. Shot of Jack Daniels in the bottle, calm you right down, you know? I was just going to ask, was it whiskey? Because I've heard that too. I've also heard that yep. people, so I got Mandy, my wife, across from me, and we're getting ready to have a baby girl here, and we will not be putting whiskey on the child's gums or in the bottle, regardless oh, of colic okay. or not, right? Like we, okay, let's learn from Scott's yep. story here. I love it. Okay, keep rolling, <laughs> Scott. Sorry, man. And, you know, that's where it all started. So I guess when I was still in diapers was my first taste of alcohol. Um, but I had my first beer at six and then throughout my life, you know, whenever my dad wanted a beer, I would go and I would suck the foam off of it. Or then, you know, it started at I would take a drink, you know, and so on and so forth. And, you know, they, everybody thought it was cute when little Scotty would go and grab their eggnog at the, you know, Christmases or whatever. And. You know, of course, they had rum in them and all that, and you know, so it was normal. And six-year-old Scotty or, doesn't know, right? Like you, you're just no. you're just like getting some attention, right? Trying to be like your dad. I can kind of yep. think of like I used to when my dad would shave, I would just get a, a razor that didn't uh -huh. have a blade in it, and I would like pretend shave too. So yeah, mm -hmm. I got you. So that's right. kind of the Put your cream on your face and pretend yeah. shave next. Yeah, yeah man. Okay, so you you're know, just I at just, that phase. I just electric razored my granddaughter when I was shaving this morning, just, you know, because it's that sort of thing. So yeah, yeah. it's, it's that exact same thing. Okay. Um, and so it was, it was, you know, normal. Time, it was normal. normal. Yeah, exactly. Um, what wasn't normal is later on going into middle school and stuff. And I'm, you know, taking, I'm pouring a little bit of Cointreau or whatever it may be, little booze into, little uh um mini bottles or whatever and bringing them with me to school in middle school you know, middle school mm. yep and then it just progressed from there you know as they say this is a, a progressive disease so we start out small and in order to try to get that same feeling we have to increase what we're doing so you know, high school comes around and I'm not going to classes. I'm skipping school. I'm doing all the, all the things that really uh, were detrimental to me. Yeah. But yeah. The, the unmanageability me, that comes along with the substance use. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, but to me, it was just, I didn't see it. I was too close to the trees to see the forest. Right. Um, so it was, it was just normal progression for me. Um it got to the point where I'd started to run away from school, from house, you know, from home and uh, living out on the streets for, you know, a couple of weeks and then come home and 
you know, steal my dad's car or stepdad's car. And, you know, my mom and dad got divorced, which, you know, take that role model away and then put in somebody new and it's, oh yeah, well, I'll show you, you know, it's not my dad and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And it just kind of rolled from there. Yeah. The rebellion, uh, the rebellion kicked in. Something tells me, Scott, I don't know what year, what year you went to high school, but something tells me back then they didn't really have a lot of education around substances. Like, do you remember sitting in health class? I graduated in 1988. So yeah, no, they didn't. (laughs) They didn't, they didn't sit you around and say, listen, Scotty, six years old, sipping uh, foam off of a beer, having a beer with his dad around Super Bowl is probably not the best idea. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no. it got to the point where when I was a senior in high school, I ended up, my my mom put me into rehab. Oh, wow. In uh, Marin County. Actually, my sister had gone before me, and then I was in a uh, private boarding school. I was given a choice. Would you like to go to military school, or do you want to go to a private boarding school in Lake Tahoe? Was this because your mom knew of the substance abuse or <laughs> was it the behaviors? Really yeah. It was behaviors. It was behavior in school. Um, but we did she know that you were drinking like, or was it just like, Oh, oh we got to get these behaviors under, under control. Oh, oh no, she knew. Okay. She knew I was drinking. She knew I was doing drugs. She knew I was doing all of that. Um, Scott, you just recovery. crossed over from alcohol, which I know it's still a drug, but you said doing drugs. It sounds like in high school Absolutely. you started, it became more than just liquid. Absolutely. Um, again, the progression of my illness took me there um that's not everybody's story it happens to be part of mine i'm both you know i am an addict full bore it doesn't matter what it is adrenaline you know etc drugs alcohol i was into all of it um and again it started progressively as well Mm -hmm. you know just smoking a joint and then it was more and more and more and then it went on to you know, mushrooms and cocaine and yeah. methamphetamines. And I mean, just grew, you name it. Just grew, grew, grew. I was, I was doing everything I'd get my hands on. I, I used to tell people I was a professional Guinea pig. If you want somebody to test it for you, I'm your guy. <laughs> Talk to me about boarding school and rehab it in, you said that was at 16. So, um, no, I was, I graduated when I was 17 years old. Okay. So it was at 17. Um, I went up to boarding school and, Tahoe. Like I said, I had a choice of Lake Tahoe or military school. That's not really much of a choice. I was like, let's see, skiing for PE? Sure, I'll go there. Right. Um, right. But try to, you know, at that time, all my mom knew was, let's get him out of that environment and that will help him. Mm. Well, what she didn't realize is, you know, skiing up there, I was filling my Boda bag, which is, you know, a little leather bag with Everclear and Kool-Aid from the um, school's cafeteria had the Kool-Aid. We would get somebody to buy a bottle, save it, and we would fill it up half and half, and we would be drinking that and doing uh, bong hits on and smoking pot on the on the lifts, you know, right. for skiing. So she, so she took you out of the environment, but you still were very much in your active addiction Still very much in your disease. It followed you. Your disease went with you. That's the things with addicts is we don't, it's not about the place you're at. It's about the place you're at in here, not physically. Because it doesn't matter what, where you put me in the world, I will find what I'm looking for quickly. Mm. I know what to look for. I know how to find it. I know who to talk to. As addicts, at least for myself, I, I was really in tune with that. So I knew immediately what to look for, who to look for, and how to talk to people. It's funny Perfect. how we can get super resourceful when we have this uh, drive that just will not stop, right? Like, it's funny well, because what, then when, a lot of times when we get in treatment or we get into early recovery, like, you know, forget getting a job and forget, you know, like, I'm just speaking from experience. People go from being very resourceful, like you're talking about, Scott, being able to find it, sniff it out, locate it to um anyways that's probably a tangent yeah i don't i don't know what the heck i'm doing (laughs) Uh, yeah but you know people have told me you know what is being an addict's like having a full-time job and i'm like no it's in it's a lifestyle every thinking moment every breathing moment and every wake moment revolves around it Mm. it's 
if it's not doing it, it's where do I get it? What do I have to do to get it? Who do I get it from? Um, I mean, it's the whole thing. There's no um, setting it off to the side. Everything revolved around it. Yeah, so for me, putting me in another location, all that's doing is changing the people, places, and things that I had to do to get it or the people that I got it from. Mm-hmm. And while it was less as far as hard drugs went, it was more for alcohol. Nevada, because I, I was in South Lake Tahoe, so it was Nevada. So at that time, Nevada was really easy with their alcohol laws, but very, very stringent with their drug laws. Hmm. So it really transferred from my last year of um, high school to being really back to the bottle. And I went down to visit my parents in um, on Presidio San Francisco at the time, and they had me admitted into a Marine General Hospital for the Adolescent Recovery Center for the, uh, let's see, it was the spring, early summer of uh, 1988. So they, they started realizing that even though you went to military school, right, which was meant to address the behaviors, it was more than well, that. Well, it wasn't military school. That was my choice. Oh, that's right. School it was military school or Lake Tahoe. Tahoe. Okay. So I chose Lake Tahoe, and they thought that just, you know, the change of venue would change who I am. How was that experience, and going to, to the state hospital for adolescent substance abuse? Well, it was really – it really threw up – big big wall i grew a big wall of resentment from that just because i was student body president at the time i was getting excellent grades better grades than i'd ever gotten before i mean yeah i was doing what i was doing but i was doing well Mm. and it just seemed like okay since i'm doing well and and you don't really see me in my day-to-day how do you know what's going on and then to throw me in there it just immediate resentment right then brick wall just shot up and i closed myself off to everything and i said oh okay if you're gonna treat me like this then i'm gonna be like this if that's if that's what you're looking for that's what you're gonna get and i'm gonna give it to you with fades so instead of, instead so of seeking the answer off. you just dug in deeper yeah oh yeah 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 oh yeah and uh yeah Exactly right. You know, it's like, oh, you want a hole? Let me show you. I'll dig you a hole. <laughs> Here. <laughs> yeah. Watch. Yeah. Let me hurt you by hurting me. Right. You're going to treat me like a criminal. I'm going to become the best criminal you've ever seen. You know what I mean? It's, it, I didn't, unfortunately, at the time, have the mental capacity to understand that, that they were trying to help. Right. Right. Um, I, I took it as you're punishing me for doing well. Okay. You know, and, Unfortunately, that's just how it was. And uh, in the mean, while I was in there, they ended up moving to Monterey. <clears throat> and when I got out of the treatment center, I came to live with them in Fort Orton, Monterey, California. Still with all these resentments? And, still with all these hard feelings? Or had you kind of worked it out? Oh, no, I still had them. Oh, okay. um, but I am really good at giving you what you want to hear mm, manipulation. So yeah. I did the exact things that they wanted me to do in that rehab. And boy, was I a model student. Sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> and they were so impressed with how I turned everything around and how much I opened up and how, because I realized fighting it was not going to help me. Mm. That was going to make it worse. So I played their game. Um, I played it well. And when I turned 18, I voluntarily checked myself out in September. And this is probably a really weird question, Scott, but it's very interesting for me. So I'm going to ask it. How many of those people were people in recovery that were working at the hospital or were they just people that kind of read it in a book? At that time in 1988, I'd say most of them, if not all of them came came from a book. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, because uh, because we get the song and dance all the time, right? We get the uh, they learn the language and they they present very well, one hand in front, the other hand behind the back type stuff. It sounds like that's what you had going on, and and uh, when you've been through it yourself, and you know, real recognizes real, right? And as oh, absolutely. as much as people have this, um, I don't know. I hear some people have like some controversy around people in recovery, helping other people. Uh, we get it. We, we know to look for those behaviors. We know to look for the, we call it the golden child syndrome, right? When they're, when they're presenting very well, but they've got a whole lot, it's like a duck on a pond. You know, it looks like they're just gliding smoothly, but they're kicking like heck underneath the water. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. So thank you for letting me ask that. It was just interesting. So that was just, that little rehab was, was there for, as a short term. And then they sent me to uh, another rehab in um, Tulsa, Oklahoma. And that was their first year as a drug and alcohol rehab for juveniles. Um, it was originally a full lockdown facility for severely mentally impaired and aggressive teenagers. Mm. So, mm. you know, we being addicts, if we got out of hand, they would, they would force you to the ground and shoot you with Haldol oh, wow. to calm you down and knock you out. That was their standard operating procedure. They didn't understand addiction. They understood let's, you know, these, these kids that we normally get are violent criminal offenders that can't be housed in a regular jail. So they go there. So they would restrain so, you. They'd use physical force. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah physical force and chemical restraint oh, Wow, as well. So like I said, they didn't understand the concept of addiction. So we had a bunch of kids that were like, Oh, time for me to be bad. You know, time to get my fix. Right. Uh, out, I, I wasn't one of them. <laughs> Although I did see it. I saw it happen. And, uh, you know, I got out and that really started my, when I got out of there and came home to Monterey, I ran away from home within a couple of months and I've been on the streets. I've pretty much stayed on the streets since 18 till I was about 44 years old. And when I got sober, 18 um, to lived, 44 years old, I lived most more of my life on the streets than I did not on the streets. Um, and by on the streets, I do mean literal, on the street in Monterey, I used to live in one of the abandoned sardine oil tanks on Cannery Row. Mm. I was known as a row rat, so I lived, you know, in the rocks and stuff down underneath the all the buildings, and I, that's where I went. And I mean, I made friends with bartenders and waiters and stuff, and I would go and I would bust tables for a couple of free drinks and some food, and maybe a couple of bucks to buy a pack of smokes, you know, and but while it's I was funny because I, I get that. So my story has some homelessness in it. And a lot of times when I share it, people will ask me like, how did you come up with the money when you were homeless? Um, which for legal reasons, I don't go into all of that. Right. Cause I don't know how long the exactly. statute's been, <laughs> but, but exactly. just kidding, just That's kidding. Everybody. I'm just trying to be funny, but, but you get a hustle, right? You develop kind of a hustle and it sounds like your hustle is doing a little bit of bartending and you made some friends and yeah, it's survival, man. It's not like it's funny when they ask that question. I'm like, dude, it's survival. You do what you have to do, right? Like you don't want to know a lot also, of those stories. It's really funny because I was also really good at breaking into cars. So what I would do is, when <laughs> drunk people would lock their car, their keys in their car, I'd charge them to break into the car to get their keys out. Okay, you know, so like, okay. use, use your skills you. the way you got them, right? Right. right. Um, one of the things that I'm proud of is I was on the streets there for probably 20 years and I kept 27 kids off the streets. Wow. Um, these kids would come down and they would think that they want to get away from their parents and they run away and all this. And I would forgo my hustles. I would forgo my spot that I had that was, you know, dry and somewhat warm and out of the elements. And I would take them and show them what life on the street really was like. You know, we would eat out of the McDonald's dumpster. We would climb in there and we would take the pieces that were bitten off and we would eat the rest. And And I showed them what real living on the streets was like. It's not just away from mommy and daddy. Mm -hmm. This is tough. And I actually had parents come down and, and 
try to give me money. And I refused to take that money. And I said, I didn't do that for you. I did that for them to have a better life. So they didn't have to go through what I'm going through now. Yeah. Even in the midst of my addiction, I understood that I could use that to help others. And that yes. has always been a, a driving force in my life. I wonder if that was almost like the seed, right? Like the seed of, you know, I can be an influence to other people. We're coming up on time here. We got about 20 seconds left, but, but man, I'm excited to get back to that. And I want to hear the comeback story from 18 to 44 being homeless. Was that right? Yep. Man, can't wait to hear your comeback story, Scott. So stay with us here. We got a little 30 second sponsorship mention, and then we'll be right back to Scott Henderson. Thanks everybody for listening. You are listening to We Do Recover with Jared Miller and co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. We'll be right back after this short break with more of We Do Recover with Jared Miller, sponsored by Steps Recovery Center and the Hilton Garden Inn. I'm Desmond Lomax, one of the clinical executives here at Steps Recovery. And once you become the Steps family, you're just a part of the Steps family. A lot of us have overcome substances, overcome addiction, and now we're able to help other people. Second of all, we're also going to help you in a way where you can afford to be helped. Third of all, we're going to give you the same quality that many organizations are charging two to three times. And it's more about you than it is about our organization. We welcome you back to We Do Recover with Jared Miller, co-hosted by Dr. Terry Sellers. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. And now with part two of our podcast, Jared Miller and Dr. Terry Sellers. And we are back to episode 108. We got Scott Henderson and he just got done sharing about his childhood. Uh, he started sipping beers at, at age six with, had his first beer actually with his dad watching the Super Bowl at age six. Spent from 18 to 44 homeless. And that's where he's at in this story. We're going to get back to it. I'm excited to. Well, he was talking about the not-so-happy meals. Yeah. I just had that, that in mind, not-so-happy yeah, no, meals. They were not happy. Yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, I, sadly, I, I, yeah, been there. I know, what, yeah. I know what Scott's talking about. So we're going to get back to Scott's story. Episode 108, Part 2 is brought to us by the Hilton Garden Inn. It's always sunny and bright at the Hilton Garden Inn in St. George, Utah. If you're looking to, to get away, come check out Zion National Park. Check out the Hilton Garden in St. George, Utah. They have amazing amenities. It's always very clean, friendly staff. Uh, we love them. We appreciate them sponsoring this podcast. Also, our sponsorship mentioned during that 30-second break, Steps Recovery Centers is no longer our sponsor, but we're showing them some love, right? I mean, they, they were a sponsor for two years. I just want to throw a little out there. If you have an organization that would like to sponsor, reach out to us. You can send me an email at the full name of the podcast, we do recover with Jared Miller at gmail.com, or you can send us a direct message on Facebook, Instagram, you know, all the social media, all the, all, the, all the stuff, Sean, you know, all the stuff. So we would love to hear from you. We have a, sponsor, a main sponsorship opportunity available. Okay, Scott. You're kind of like taking these young men under their wing and being like, look, dude, this isn't the life you want, right? Like there's nothing glorious about like this whole hipster things like may sound cool, but it's not cool when you're down and out and homeless and having not so happy meals out of the McDonald's trash cans. Where does your journey go from there? I didn't tell him that at all. I told him it was fantastic. Come join me. <laughs> and I just showed him what it was like and let them make their own decision because they were like me. They were rebellious. If I told them, oh, this isn't for you, it's like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. Mm. I'll get through this anyway. Smart man. I knew I couldn't tell them that. If I told them that, it would just set it up for them to want to do that. So I had to say, you know, yeah, come on. I'll show you the ropes, you know, and that's just what I did. And, I mean, I bounced around while I was there on the streets, Moscow, Idaho, and back. And, I mean, just all over the place. And my, my drug use got so much worse um did you when ever, you're on the street real quick did you ever just yeah. another one of my curious random questions i'm trying to be there with you right now right like in my mind and one of the stories that i kind of told myself um in this period was like i'm a rebel like i'm a vagabond like i would try i came up with this like narrative to try to improve my situation or make me feel better about the depths that my addiction had taken me 
Was there any type of narration going on in your head? Was there any type of like, does that make sense to you at all? It does. And the only real narration for me was I hung around people worse than me. Ah, I had justification. This, this crazy dude that I let stay in that spot that I had that was that abandoned soil water tank. I mean, this guy used to pee in jars and store it. Mm. And I mean, just, yeah, he was really, really bad off. So if I kept people around me worse off than me, I look, I'm not that bad. Yeah. I you know, that. that was my justification. And for me, it was like, so, I hated society. Like I can remember standing on street corners and yelling at cars, the things you own, own you. Right. Like I had this really like deep, uh, psychological, like I just was an anti-social, uh, as far as like, I, d I felt the story, the narration I was telling myself was like, I don't want to fit into society because society's so sick. I had this, uh, judgmental, like you've rejected me, but I'm rejecting you type thing. Was any of that true for you, Scott? No, mine was opposite. I, m the vast majority of the time I was homeless, you did, you wouldn't know. Mm. I, so you're kind of bougie my, homeless. The way I talk, um, I have a very good vocabulary and everything else. Yeah, I was bougie homeless, but that was my, that was my fun. I was like mental health broken oh, down. Homeless. You let me into this nice, <laughs> I'm in this nice dinner and you have no idea who I am. Okay. Okay. You know Imagine. what I mean? And that was my get back at them is, uh-huh. You don't know who you're dealing with. Right. Like you're pulling one over on them. You were slick. You were sneaky. Yeah, I was pulling one over on them and without them knowing it. And that yeah. was my love right there. Yeah. What do you is, think that you really, that you really needed in that moment though? Like, like for me, I can look back and think like, you know, I was, I, again, I was mental health crisis homeless where I, I had a lot of mental health stuff going on. Um, ultimately though, I just wanted to be seen. I just wanted love. I just wanted acceptance. I wanted to, to know that, uh, somehow, some way, it was possible to repiece my life back together. For me, I was selfish. Okay. Um, even this whole time, the whole time I was on the streets, I never got um, state help. Mm. I never asked for help. I never flew a sign on the corner. Um, I never asked for money. I never begged for money um, because I knew that I had done this to myself mm. and I couldn't fit into society because I enjoyed doing what I was doing and didn't have to answer to anyone for it. So you genuinely, so, that's, that's very interesting for me, Scott, you genuinely thought like you had the reflection or the mental clarity to realize that you had done this to you. Oh yeah. Really? Oh yeah. Mm. I knew the reason I was there is because I wanted to be there. So you had no victim mentality stuff going on. No, there was no victim mentality. Okay. It was, I, you guys were the victims. I was playing you okay. because I was so much smarter and knew so much better. I hope, I hope this is interesting to people, bro. This is super interesting not, to me. Like I love when I can not, geek out about this type of stuff with somebody that like gets it and has a different perspective. So just thank yeah, you. Yeah. And, and you know, that was my get back at society was I don't have to pay your bills. I don't have to pay rent. I have a, I was living on the ocean in Monterey, California, mm -hmm. where people pay through the nose to live. I was living closer than them for free. I And that was my get back at them. You know, I didn't have to pay taxes. I didn't have to pay rent. I didn't have any bills. I had no responsibilities. There was nothing and nothing holding me back. If I wanted to up and leave, I could mm. right then and there. Isn't and it so interesting how like our substance abuse. Sorry, sorry. Go ahead. We have a little bit of a delay. So for those that are listening, I may cut Scott off. It's a, just a tiny bit of a delay. <laughs> Go ahead. What were you saying? And it, that, that to me was, I, I fully realized that. Mm. And I had that full realization. I did the alcohol and the drugs to overcome those feelings of sadness and loneliness and the fact that I wasn't a part of. I thought I was getting one over and I thought I was being a part of society on the fringe, but I knew I wasn't and it hurt. Yeah. So a yeah. lot of that 
uh, alcohol and drug use was to mask that that feeling of inadequacy. Mm-hmm. Even though I felt I was superior, I knew I was inferior mm-hmm. because I would watch these people drive by in their nice cars and go, well, I don't have that or shop or be able to buy a pack of smokes or be able to sleep on a bed or, you know, be able to go to the fridge. I didn't have any of that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I'm eating people's leftovers mm-hmm. and I know I am. So I am therefore a part of society's leftovers, you know, and how do I justify that? It's by getting as messed up as I possibly could. When I was going to say the one plays off the other too, right? Because I know for me, there came a point in time where like I had a suicide attempt and it was a hundred percent because I I did not believe, I thought I was mentally like just done, right? Like, but it's, it's amazing when you take away the substance, how the brain gets healthier, right? So they definitely play off of each other. Like whether the one causes the other or the other one starts the one, they're definitely like a one-two combo. It's like a, you know what I mean? It's like a jab uh, punch, right? Like, um, yeah. So I, I, I get what you're saying. At what point were you, I mean, how do you become not homeless when you've been homeless since 18 to 44? Like, let's get into the solution, man. We got 15 minutes left. In 2014, well, while I was starting, you know, while I was doing all this, then the criminal things started happening, mm-hmm. started you know, getting in trouble with the law for more and more and worse and worse. And in 2014, I was done. I was living here in Reno and I was absolutely done. And on my birthday, I wanted to kill myself. Mm. So I had a rope, everything set up on a tree by the river. And then I fell out because I was coming off the drugs <laughs> and we can laugh about it now. Right. Is it okay that I kind of yeah. laugh? Cause it's and, kind of funny, and, right? And like I the drugs saved you, I but they were what was killing you. Right. And I couldn't find anymore. Yeah. So four days later on September 22nd, I got a hold of some and got arrested with it. Mm. And it was, a pretty substantial charge. And I ended up looking at, am I going to prison or not? And sitting in jail, I came to the conclusion that I'd already had grandkids and stuff back by now. And I was like, well, do I really want them to visit me through glass? Mm. And while I was in jail awaiting trial and all this, my dad came to visit me. And this is what, really did it. He came to visit me and he'd always been there by my side through everything. And he came up to me and I, it was a visit out of the blue and I got called for visiting. I was like, Oh, okay. So I got on the phone and he said, Hey, I put 20 bucks on your books. I said, thanks. You didn't have to do that. He said, no problem. And by the way, you're no longer my son. You're dead to me. Never call me again. Never talk to me again. You are no longer my son. Stay out of my life. To me, you're dead. Got up and walked away. My jaw hit the floor. Mm. And I didn't know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah. Honestly. That's heavy, and man. I remember I had a good friend of mine. While I, was, uh, I had a friend that I made, and I'm still friends with him now, that I made in jail. And he was in the same pod as me. And he and I would go sit out on the yard and talk. And I went out there and I cried on his shoulder in jail, which is a huge no-no. Yeah, no, you don't do that in jail. You don't show vulnerability. Point, I was broken. My rock, my rock had absolutely sank out from under me. And I realized then what I was doing to others by it's not just me. My actions are affecting others. And I remember that night very clearly. It was a clear night. And I looked through the chain link that was above us. (laughs) And instead of those foxhole prayers of God, Lord, get me out of this. And I promise I'll never do it again. I said, Lord, no matter what, I'm not doing this again. I don't care if I go to prison. I don't care if I get drug court. I don't care if I get probation. I don't care if they let me out tomorrow. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I am done. 
Sounds like surrender to me, man. That was the absolute breaking point. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely surrendered at that point. And I haven't done anything since then. Um, I ended up with drug court out of that charge and I ended up getting out of jail on probation and they let me get out of jail on probation to the um, homeless shelter, which I didn't go to because that was gross. So my first year of drug court and sobriety was still on the streets. Um, really? I would wake up with drunks pouring beers on my head, wake up to being kicked. Um, all I would do is I, I got a temporary job from a temp agency and I would make enough day labor and I would make enough money for a pack of cigarettes, something to eat and bus fare for the next day I worked. And no matter what, I would not spend that two bucks for bus fare to get to work on Monday because it was a Monday through Friday. So through the weekend, I didn't work. So I didn't have any money, but I still kept that two bucks no matter what. I would go run through casinos and pick butts out of ashtrays if I wanted to smoke cigarettes. That's that's what I did. But I stayed sober no matter what. I stayed sober. And as I laid, I laid right there on the river walk, which was on a, uh, it's like a granite um, steps, these big granite steps. And I would pull a cardboard box down there and I would lay on that. And I had my backpack as a pillow. And I would look up at these expensive high-rise apartments. And I would say, maybe one day, Maybe one day I could be in there. Mm. But for now, every day I laid down, I said, thank you, Lord, for the obstacles you've put in my way because it's shown me that I'm able to overcome those. No matter what, I am staying sober. Bro, you found gratitude laying on some marble stairs on a cardboard box with the backpack as a pillow. If people can't find gratitude in better situations than that, I don't know what to tell them, man. That's amazing. You know, Every hardship after that was a thank you for showing me that I'm able to overcome that without drugs and alcohol. Yeah. I am able to do that through the program with a sponsor, working the steps and understanding myself and just relying on myself at this point. And this is the first time that I in my life that I hadn't blamed others for what's going on in my life. I took responsibility. I it's owned huge. it. I said, you, know, you wouldn't be in this spot, Scott, if you hadn't done this, 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 and this. Yeah, it's huge, man. I love the book Extreme, yeah. Extreme Ownership by Jacko Willings and Leaf Babe. And I always tell people, anybody that'll listen to me for two seconds, I tell them that that book changed my life. So, Scott, though, you touched on something. You just kind of breezed past it, which it might be a big staple in your recovery, I'm, I'm assuming. You said uh, you were hitting meetings and you got a sponsor. It sounds like you were doing some 12 step program stuff. Well, see when I was in, while I was on the streets being sober, I was in drug court. So that meant every two days I would randomly have to go drug test. I would have to go to court once a week um, in front of the judge. I went to counseling sessions at a recovery place. Uh -huh. It was that, um, you know, external, so I would go there and I would talk to a counselor outpatient, once a week. Outpatient. outpatient. Yep. I also went to the um, parole, parole and probation to mm -hmm. have my probation, my parole officer, my probation officer to talk to them as well. Um, so all of this was going on as I was still on the streets. So you had some structure, just not a roof over your head and transportation. I was the most structured, unstructured person you've ever met. <laughs> I love that, man. That might be the golden nugget I pull out of this. <laughs> you know, that's like kind of having a weight on a pendulum and having it fly around and consider the string, the structure. That <laughs> yeah. was my life at that time. But that, to me, gave me a better foundation of recovery. Because if I can do that, mm. I can do anything. This mm. isn't, you know, there's nothing that's going to stop me. If that's how it started then continuing it can only be easier. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, that reminds me of, I, I, I am not a big platitude fan. Right. But, uh, it reminds me that recovery platitude, uh, addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Recovery is giving up one thing for everything. Like that's what I heard in your message, Scott. Yeah. 
So how did you time. ever get up off the streets? Like you look like you're living in a home now. We got about seven minutes yeah. left here, buddy. Yeah. How did well, you rise see, actually, from marble from marble stairs? And everything, my dad, when I was in Monterey, said, "Hey, you need to get out of here. Come live with me." I went to Louisiana. He put me through culinary school. So you know, everywhere you go, always needs cooks. Well, and your dad Having saw the growth. It sounds like because right, how does he go from saying, "Hey, I don't, you're no longer in my life, you're dead to me," to like? No, no, no. That was that was before all that happened. That was while I was still between the eighteen and forty-four. Okay. Through that time, you know, I had actually gotten a, a associate's degree and and done all that, and that's part of how I moved from town to town. Is I always had a cook's job. Oh, nice. Everywhere you go, they, there's restaurants. They always need cooks. So by doing that, that was kind of my hustle, but there was a lot of drugs with cooking and mm. everything else. So, you know, coming back to it, you know, there were times that I was lucid and then I would shoot myself in the foot and off I'd go on a runner and that was it. And I would, you know, throw that away and start all over again. So after the so drug now, court, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Now I'm on the, on the streets in drug court. My cousin happens to be the Reno police department works for the police department as a police officer unbeknownst to me my father was talking to him and he was checking up on me through my courts so he could see that all my drug tests were clean i was making my court dates i was making my you know i was doing the program correctly mm -hmm. and after about a year that i was sitting there on the streets reading a book minding my own business and i hear hey and I look up, and my dad is standing in front of me. Oh, hi. Wow. So, hi, you want to get some lunch? I said, sure, I would love to. And we went for lunch, and he said, look, I know you're doing well. I know you're doing what you need to do. I was a little hot-headed. Might be where you get it. But, hey. <laughs> Sorry. That's, okay. That's my granddaughter. <laughs> the one we're trying to get custody of. Um, but she's, you know, my dad said, look, you're doing the thing. Let's get you a place to live. Yeah. Man. And he got me lately. And from then on, he was part of my life again. Um, he recently passed away, but he passed away proud of me because I do have sobriety and I am doing it. And the only reason that that happened was because I didn't ask for it. I didn't expect it. I didn't, I didn't even know it was going to happen. Yeah. All I was doing is I was doing the right thing for me, which again, influenced those people around me to want to be a part of my life again. I never asked anyone to be a part of my life. In that time I was on the streets, I'd had a daughter. Mm -hmm. I was not there for at all. So part of this Part of my story is my two-year-old granddaughter right now, the one banging on the, the walls that I'm sure you got. <laughs> yeah, don't even worry about it. Yeah, super cute. Um, but she's in the other room with my wife. I now have a career. I now have strong sobriety. I'm a sponsor for someone in recovery who has five years of sobriety themselves. Mm -hmm. I don't... I now have my mom back in my life, my sister back in my life. My daughter lives right up the street from me. We moved her up from Arizona with my granddaughter and got them into an apartment. And now they're doing well here. And that's all because I'm clean and sober and actively, actively making my life better. And people want to be around that. Those same people that didn't want me around because I pushed them away and I was destroying my life, I was also destroying theirs. And as I became willing to make my life better, they became willing to want to be a part of that. Yeah, yeah. In the basic and text, I, in the basic text, there's a little part that I remember that that I love. It's one of my favorite parts. And it says, um, oftentimes our loved ones, basically I'm ad living here, right? Like I can't quote it. But it says, oftentimes, um, our loved ones doubt our clean time, uh, but yep. but clean time speaks for itself. So eventually, yep. right, because we've told them, how many times we told them, like, oh, I'm clean this time, I'm clean how this time. How many times have I lied time. to them? Yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. 
but but consistent clean time speaks for itself. You know, when you start to rebuild your life and you're putting one foot in front of the other, I mean, there it's powerful. Like people can see it, and people need to see it, right? Because we've we've talked the talk for so long, they really need to see us walk the walk. And oftentimes, like in your story, they they come out and they help. Like you were saying before, when I was in rehab, you know, you can't BS a BSer. Right. You know, yeah. we know. Um, when I was when I was going through counseling, I asked my counselor, I said, are you in recovery? My first counselor said, no. And I said, awesome. I hope you do well in this. I'm going to need to talk to somebody that is. Mm. I Nothing against you, but you won't understand it if you haven't lived it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. part of my recovery. I don't trust anybody that's learned this from a book. Yeah. And sometimes when you know, when you know somebody's struggling and they're coming in, they're giving you the parakeet talk and they're saying all the stuff, right. And they're, they're masking what's really going on. I, I literally have looked across in the face of a client and said, are you sure that's the story you want to go with? And they know you're that I know, right? Like they know that you're I know. You're not going to call me on it if you can't identify it. Right. Yeah. And it takes me to know me. Yeah. Listen, Scott, we got Someone about. can understand it. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you, congratulations on the eight years, right? Since 2014. That's huge. Listen, I, I love the little babies in the other room kicking and hitting on the wall, right? Because that's proof, man. You're living recovery. You got your family there. You're doing the deal. One of the biggest takeaways I got from your story, Scott, and I hope that our listeners got the same one is if Scott can do this being homeless from eight, age 18 to age 44, I can do it too. Thank you so much, buddy. I appreciate you coming on. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. And the one thing I want to make sure is, you know, we are not a glum lot. Sobriety can be fun. Try to find fun in what you do. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Listen, on the 27th, we will have Kalichi. Thank you for joining us today on We Do Recover with Jared Miller. Help us spread our message of hope. Like, comment, and share. If you have any topics or ideas for future shows, please share that on our Facebook page. That Facebook page is We Do Recover with Jared Miller. If you or a loved one needs help, please reach out to us. Again, thank you for listening. Brought to you by Steps Recovery Center and the St. George Hilton Garden Inn. This has been a production from A Podcast Studio.